Last summer, the comedian Josie Long found a mobile phone on the ground at a festival. When I first found it, I was like, has anyone else the phone? Has anyone else the phone? No. So then I sort of went into the phone calls to see who had most recently called it. And I called them and I just got machines. So I left a couple of messages. And then it got to about, I think, 12 hours. It was the next morning. And I just couldn't resist it anymore. There were about 500 texts in there and I just wanted to see who Who's the... life. Yeah. And I started reading and they were just... This is so compelling. Even though it was really not interesting. I can tell you about the main constituent elements of it, right? Her boyfriend, that was the biggest one. There was a few with her dad and there was a few of their friends, and they were all really different in character. So the ones from her dad were always just him checking up on her. The ones with the friends were all so effusive, like, love you so much, you're the greatest friend in the world, XXX, love you, la la la, like really, really beautiful. And the ones from the boyfriend were all either going, sorry, there's traffic on the way to Camberley, I'll be an hour late, can you put the pizza in the oven or take the pizza out the oven? It's all like pizza admin. Or saying, baby, I don't know what I've done wrong, but please can we not have another argument? I'm so sorry. I don't want us to keep writing like this. Or really, really dirty about their sex life, right? I feel guilty about the fact that I know about their sex life because it would all be like, I can't believe you like X so much. Then I started to feel, yeah, but I can't believe you like things, different things that they would like so much. When you say X, of course, I'm just imagining her in the shape of the letter X. (laughs) It's a sex thing. That's what young people do. No, I'm censoring it. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not steal. I feel so bad. This is probably the least moral thing I've ever done in my life. But then I gave it back, but not to her. She wasn't around, so her friend, she went, oh, she'd be really grateful, she's always losing things. And I, a little part of me, was like, yeah, you know, I know. I don't know what I wanted at the end of it. Like, I didn't want to be a friend or anything, but if I could have just kept that phone and kept reading new texts. So if she'd been somebody you knew, you wouldn't have done it, would you? Oh, God, no. You're not spying because you're worried or suspicious. You're spying because it's thrilling, you know? It's fascinating. Josie Long. You shall not blaspheme. I also love to quietly watch how strangers behave, which is why I became a journalist. I imagine I'd have made a good spy because I'm inquisitive. She take my money when I'm in need. Johnny Howarth used to imagine himself as a good spy too. Oh, she's a gold digger. He's a young Englishman who was once a personal shopper in Los Angeles for Kanye West. I'd wander up and down Red Air Drive and um, my boss, she would give me artistic licence to pick and choose bits and pieces for, say, a music video or a photo shoot or if he was getting an award. Was Kanye West demanding? He was. Back when I was styling him, he would only wear Gap pants because he used to work as a shop assistant in Gap before he became famous. So it just seemed like a very, I'm presuming, a very sort of shallow life. Yeah, it was a bit depressing. Johnny wanted adventure. 
He read in the paper about a couple, Ed and Elaine Brown, who are holed up in their house in rural New Hampshire, refusing to pay their taxes and being surveyed by the local U.S. Marshals, led by Stephen Monia. They lived on a remote 100-acre compound. We knew they were heavily armed, so we didn't want to have a violent confrontation with them. We wanted to take a slower approach and avoid the kinds of uh, conflagration that you saw in Waco and Ruby Ridge. Johnny had never been a journalist, but he thought the Ed and Elaine Brown story might make a good documentary. And so, feeling burnt out by Kanye West, he flew to New Hampshire. In my very best idiotic English person impression, turned up and just knocked on the door and said, can I come in for a cup of tea? And they just kind of invited me in and I spent the afternoon chatting with Ed whilst Elaine um, cooked away in the kitchen. Were they nice? Yeah, they were lovely. Here is the quite badly recorded sound of Johnny talking to the Browns in their kitchen. Ed is telling Johnny that he's ready to die in a shootout with the Marshals. I will never give up. I'll never give up. How, how does that make you feel? Fine. You'd be fine with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll take him to the death. Mm -hmm. Are you scared? No. It's going to work. I kept on going back, getting to know them a little bit better. So I would go and get their groceries and second-hand romantic novels and go and rent them films and pick up some of their posts. Buy them any clothes in case they're accepting awards? (laughs) No. This went on for weeks until one day Johnny was stopped on the road by the marshals and taken in for questioning. To the marshals' surprise, Johnny immediately started telling him about various things he'd seen inside the Browns' house. He sounded enthusiastic, quite excited. The main thing that I wanted to tell him was Ed and Elaine had basically told me that they and their supporters had drawn up a long assassination list And if anything was to happen to them, say they got killed, then in retaliation, all these people would get killed. The marshals looked interested and started asking Johnny lots of questions. They were asking me who was turning up to the house, what their state of mind was, what guns, bombs, things like that they had. Johnny merrily answered their questions, which is when the marshals asked him if he fancied working for them as a paid informant. I took this opportunity to talk to him about whether he might be interested in providing us with additional information based on his subsequent interviews with the Browns and his visits to the property. Most journalists, if a law enforcement officer said that to them, would shriek outraged. So there must have been something about Johnny Howarth that made you think he might be susceptible to it. Uh, I had a sense from our discussion with him that he might be amenable to it. I think it was just a general feeling I developed. um, Maybe a kind of innocence. That could be. You know, he obviously wasn't an American journalist. He was from Great Britain. I think that may have been a factor. So what did you say to them when they made you this offer? I basically sort of said to them, gosh, um, that sounds interesting. Can I consider it? Johnny phoned his dad. His dad said, if it's a paid job, take it. So he took it. How much, by the way, did they offer? A thousand bucks a week. Quite a lot of money. Which is good. And it's cash as well. I would be uh, paid to film the layout of the house, 
tell them who was coming and going, what their plans were. And give them the film? And give them the film, yeah. That's no longer a kind of ambiguous line between no. being a journalist who's no. helping people out and you know, no. that's totally stopping being a journalist no. and starting yeah. being a, a spy. At the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, crumbs, gosh, what on earth are you doing, Johnny? And that's how Johnny Howarth became a spy for the US Marshals. Did he make a good one? Did he have the right sort of personality? What is the right sort of personality? These questions will be answered later in the programme. The comedian Danny Wallace was once unexpectedly spied on by the East German Stasi. My dad is an expert in German literature, with an interest in, in the Stasi. And in fact, in his official Stasi file, he's known as Staatsfeindlich, I think, which essentially means enemy of the state. And it turns out that our phone was being bugged, presumably, we think, by MI5. And as he put the phone to his, his ear, he would hear his own conversation being played, essentially in the back of a van, with people commenting on it, things like that. And he'd have to say, I'm sorry, can I use my phone? And you'd suddenly hear men panicked, going, oh, knocking off their coffee and all that kind of stuff. Danny says the Stasi sent one of their spies undercover to the university where Danny's father was teaching to ingratiate himself with the Wallace family. This spy, his mission was to pretend to be a student at Loughborough in the 80s. But he's supposed to be about 22 and he's clearly 44, you know, so already he's failing. Not only that, but he's not kind of wearing stonewashed jeans and a, a Smith's thing. He's dressed like something out of an Oxbridge drama from the 60s. <laughs> like with a scarf. He had a long scarf, he had a leather briefcase and a long kind of tweed-style jacket. He stood out, uh, essentially. However, he was invited round to the house. I went into the kitchen with my mum and she was going to make him a cup of tea and, and she'd been out of the kitchen perhaps five seconds after determining he wanted a cup of tea and when she went back in, he was right on the other side of a quite long room studying our family photographs. He couldn't have sauntered or meandered over there. He would have had to have leapt over there very quickly and he'd been caught out and mum just wanted to ask about biscuits or, or something like that. You know, I remember having a spy kit when I was a kid. and it was, You know, something you want to do. There was um, a plastic cigar, a pair of fake glasses, magnifying glass, notepad, all the basics. And yet, we go into spying completely unprepared. Danny Wallace. Over in New Hampshire, a completely unprepared Johnny Howarth had just become a spy for the US Marshals, reporting on the heavily armed tax protesters, Ed and Elaine Brown. With them, he was pretending to be a sympathetic documentary maker. Here, he records himself telling them that the US Marshals are just mercenaries. They are, in a sense, just mercenaries. Yeah. Following, the, uh, mm -hmm. following the herd. That's all the police are, law enforcement, sheriff's departments, all federal government agents are all nothing but mercenaries. Mm. Paid hired guns. Right. I was just playing a very dangerous game, just playing both sides off against each other. The Marshals... I know for a fact did not trust me because they were also following me, I later found out. Was the handler demanding? Yeah, impatient. Um, what would he say to you? Well, just kind of things like, what are the names? Did you feel like he was, like, frustrated with you? Yeah. The character traits that attracted the marshals to Johnny, a kind of bumbling, eager innocence, were the same traits that were making him a terrible spy. The boundaries were a mystery to him. Some explosives 
got sent by some uh, other militia members. So did you deliver them explosives? I did deliver them explosives. One day, another young British man turned up. Paul Lewis, a journalist with The Guardian. I was sat interviewing them and I just saw this car pull up in the drive and then out got this guy who was quite young and I thought, well, you know, who's that? And he went round to the boot and took out some bags of fertiliser, aiding and abetting them, clearly bringing in explosives. They were clearly trusting enough of him to just let him do what he wanted, fiddle around the house. The way I saw it was they had kind of adopted him as their son. And he didn't say a word, and it was only a while later when he did say something that I heard he had an English accent. So in the end, I just slipped in my telephone number. Johnny phoned Paul later that day, sounding incredibly nervous. They agreed to meet for dinner. I mean, he was a mess. He was really quite nervous, I thought. I'm absolutely useless at keeping secrets. And I was just gagging to tell someone my plight. I mean, he was clearly in a situation that he didn't know how to get out of. I mean, one of the things he said was, look, can you just not tell my dad this? <laughs> he just said, you're an idiot. It's just lunacy. It's just incredibly dangerous. And, um, you know, it's m morally wrong. The federal marshals had plenty of evidence that he had been aiding and abetting this couple. He could end up arrested and charged and prosecuted for aiding and abetting fugitives. He could end up in the middle of a gunfight between the feds and the couple. Equally... Ed and Elaine Brown could figure out that he was two-timing them. I mean, Ed had a real temper on him. Paul had said, just leave, just don't go back. And then Johnny got the first flight out of New Hampshire. I got an email from my handler, I think, two days afterwards to say, check the news. And they had arrested the couple using the same means that I recommended to them. Afterwards, I constantly asked myself whether or not what I was doing was the right thing and I would always come to the same conclusion that despite what I did being morally ambiguous and wrong, no one got killed. And if I can take some credit for that fact, then I can live with what I did. How long were they uh, sentenced for? The rest of their natural lives. Johnny Howarth. The US Marshals later tell me that despite Johnny's fears... During the week or two that he worked as a spy for them, he was never at risk of being arrested and his involvement didn't influence the outcome of the siege at all because the marshals had loads of other undercover officers in there. Johnny didn't change anything. So if Johnny's enthusiasm and inquisitiveness and desire to do the right thing were not character traits that make a good spy, then what are? What kind of person do you have to be? I'm in Folkestone on my way to meet John Simmons, who's now in his 70s and trying to tell people about his spying days. It looks like a sort of retirement, so a seaside retirement block. Take off my sunglasses, I don't want him to think that uh, KGB are back. Hello, Hello there. John. John. Yeah, hi, come in. John. <laughs> When you were a child, did you want to have a life of adventure and intrigue? Well, yes, I think so. I was a very adventurous child, and I was often in trouble for that. And I liked fighting, and I think... Like, I, like I, playground fighting? Playground fighting, and I was always in trouble, because I became a sort of a gang leader. 
Oh, yes. I set up my own gang of small ruffians, and we used to chase other gangs and fight with them. Did you ever hurt anyone? Yes, I did. Did you feel sort of bad about it? No, because what happened was I was horribly bullied. And I said to my father, you know, I don't want to go to school because this other boy keeps hitting me and twisting my arm and poking me. And, and so what he did, he showed me all the weak points of another small boy. You don't hit him on the head, you hit him in the throat, yeah? You don't kick him on the shin, you kick him in the balls. So I went to school and sorted this boy out. And that was a good feeling. I can still enjoy that feeling now. And then I started going through the whole school. But did you then become the bully? Yeah, but not of innocent little children. I always went for a bully. I loaded my school bag with a huge, heavy, solid oak pencil box. Yes. And as he came past, I took his one with his head. Bonk. And he was injured quite badly. And how did that feel? Good. Yeah, good. John grew up left school and became a police officer in the Flying Squad. But then one day in the 1970s, he was accused of corruption. The newspapers said he took bribes from gangsters like Charlie Richardson. John denied it, and he still does. I read in the paper one day that I was corrupt and I'd been demanding money off this poor little criminal. Completely untrue. I knew I'd was fitted up, and so I went abroad and I thought, well, I'll bring the whole ship down. So John says he was bitter... He went to Morocco and planned to write a book about police corruption in London in the 1970s. But he never did write the book. Instead, he got involved with a bunch of shady former British soldiers. And then one day he got chatting to a friend of one of them who said he was a recruiter for the KGB. This could be an even better way of getting back at the UK, John thought. You don't just walk into the KGB. It's a long sort of process and they check up on everything and how many children I had and where were they now, and my own weaknesses. In the midst of his KGB tryout phase, he was in a bar chatting up a woman whose husband happened to be high up in the West German government. John told his KGB handler, whose name was Nick, and he replied that maybe John could try and get some secrets out of her. So you had to seduce her? So, yeah, they told me to take her to Berlin gave me a hotel to stay in, which was obviously completely rigged up as a sort of honey trap nest. And, of course, we had some mad, passionate love. And everything went on to film, every word spoken was on there. Do you feel a bit embarrassed about that, or do you feel like you probably put on a good show and it was all OK? No, it's quite funny in a way, because I was always potent. High sex drive, but low incompetence. Ha- right. Because I obviously wasn't bothering about her. Apparently everyone was laughing. At KGB headquarters? Yeah. So then they can see, if I'm going to be a Romeo spy, I need to be taught. Yes. Being a Romeo spy is not the sex. It's getting into the confidence, it's being gentle, treating them nicely. How long did these lessons go on for? Weeks. During the day, I was being taught secret writing, avoiding uh, being followed and stuff like that. And then I went back to my room and there was this girl waiting for me in my room. Giving you sex lessons? Yeah. Just pure sexual teaching. I was astonished. Because I thought I was a man of the world. I was a babe in arms. John was declared ready, he says, and he was sent out by the KGB to seduce women. In nearly every case, they were from embassies. I went to most of the countries, the whole lot, really. Never Britain, but British girls in British embassies. How did you chat them up? 
Well, I had to use my charm and meet them casually somewhere. You do Uh, have a kind of twinkle-eyed charm. Yeah. Yeah. That was useful then. Did you have kind of chatter-up lines that always worked? No, I made friends with them. Decent manners as well. When they talk, you listen carefully. Mm. You remember what they're saying. And when you reply, it's relevant and to the point. But then once you'd got what you wanted out of the women, you would just leave and go on to the next one? Yes. For John, being inquisitive wasn't important at all. What was, was being ruthless. He was filled with ruthlessness and a righteous indignation, the need for revenge. John didn't believe in anything bigger than himself, like spies are supposed to. But he did believe very much in himself. So how many women did you have sex with on behalf of the KGB? I would say many, dozens. Ninety percent of the women were as hard as nuts. You're working in an embassy, you know, sex running wild there. And in fact, it got too much in the end. They burnt me out. That's why I left them in the end. Burnt you out? How so? Well, because when they found me, I was a very virile young man, although I didn't realise just how virile I was. Then they exploited me and my body. In other words, they used me as a prostitute, in a way. And it meant that in my 40s, I started, you know, not getting erections to order. You gave your erections to the KGB? Yeah, and now I want to sue them for damages. (laughs) They want some erections back. Yeah. (laughs) Were the women ever blackmailed by the KGB after you gave them information? Yeah, some of them were, yeah was sad. Some of the women weren't anything to do with diplomacy, diplomatic corps, whatever. And there was one that I'm still a bit sorry about. It was a Chinese girl, a lovely, lovely little Chinese girl. And she was on holiday in Singapore. She was going on a tour bus every day, and I ended up sitting next to her and making friends with her. And she was tiny and like a little porcelain statuette. And I was really fond for her. That's good if you can make yourself fond of somebody because it shows in your manner, your attitude, your face, your eyes, everything. Mm. But anyway, I took her out, complimented her, kept looking at her adoringly and whatnot. We slept together, but in a special room, and I knew that everything was being photographed. You said that you felt sorry for her. Sorry for her, yes, because later on I found out she was the daughter or only child of a hugely rich Taiwanese businessman who had massive factories and were engaged in making all sorts of secret stuff for the Americans. And what happened to her? Did they go to her with the film? No, they went to the father with the film. And do you know what happened as a result of it? Yeah, he started handing over the American secrets. It was a huge success. The threat to him was, help us with the plans for this latest whatever it is, radar or whatever, or he should be published, he should come out, and that's his life ruined, and her life, and the family disgraced. So what do you think when you look back on that now? I'm very ashamed of it. Genuinely so? I know. Well, I didn't know what was going to happen, did I? Broke her father's heart, didn't it? And she was beautiful and lovely, and she fell in love with me. There will be some women listening to this who will yeah. be furious. But and... you'll be surprised. You yeah. play that to women, yes? Yeah. And There'll be a lot of oh, women listening. Oh, they might throw something at me. No, there'd be a lot of women wanting an introduction to me or something like that. Even though you sound so terribly misogynist and callous and ruthless. Yeah. 
What do you think the KGB saw in you that they thought that you would make a good Romeo spy? Do you think you're quite good at being manipulative? Yes. And you always have been. And like you manipulating me now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking you questions. Yeah. And things like empathy and remorse, you don't feel a huge amount of? It shows you prove what a crank I am. The only things I have remorse about are my dogs, a series of dogs that have all died. Because they gave me unconditional love their whole lives. And sometimes in the night I think I feel sad about such and such a dog which probably died 20 years ago. Scruffy little mongrel, you know. But they're the only creatures that have got through to me like that. People I've harmed seriously or destroyed. Poo. Uh, but I do feel sorry about that Chinese girl, one and a few other cases. In the end, John says, he had enough. He came back to London and turned himself in. I didn't want to go to my grave, which I'm apparently going to now anyway, on the record as a corrupt officer who was caught and fled the country. But the British authorities didn't prosecute. They sent John to jail for a year for the original corruption charges. But it came to the KGB honey trap stuff. They said he was a fantasist and that he'd made the whole thing up. John says that was their way of discrediting him and they needed to discredit him because he had too many secrets about corruption in the Home Office and so on. One person who does believe him is his wife, Nellie. I have very mixed feelings and I prefer not to think about it. When I think, I become sad. Do you ever think about the feelings of the other women? I think that the one thing which is missing, he has to offer an apology to all these women. Maybe he's the sort of person who just doesn't feel remorse. I don't know. He must. I do, for very small things. Does he? Do you see him feeling remorse about small things? I don't know. Not very often. And has he been a good husband these last... How many years? What, 20 years? Well, 10 years. 10 years, ten years now. Interesting. <laughs> In what way? Yeah. <laughs> Life is always interesting with John. He has a very nice sense of humour and there is never a boring moment with him. So more like a roller coaster than a roundabout? Yeah. After I left John, I had the creeping sense that maybe he was a fantasist. Maybe he had made the whole story up. So I looked him up in the Mitrokin archive. Vasily Mitrokin was for 30 years an archivist working within the KGB. His files have become the world's most detailed and trustworthy record of KGB life. Mitrokin writes that a John Simons spent eight years as a Romeo spy using seduction and romance to recruit or obtain classified information from a series of female officers. This was a, the best hotel in, in Delhi. So that's uh, you it, being a spy? Yeah, I had a fabulous time. So you, Can you imagine a Romeo spy being sent all around the world to all these places? Well, unlimited a, expense accounts. Yeah. It was the best time of my life. 